Romans 8.28, if you just turn there, the Apostle Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now we're going to look at the second half of that verse next week. For the good of those who love him. We're going to think about what it means that God works for the good of those who love him. What is his good? But this verse is so big that I just want to look at the first half of it this morning, which is, we know that in all things, God works. Do you believe that? That in all things. That everything that goes on in this world, God is in control of. When the planes hit the New York Towers, God was at work. When Hitler sent millions of people to their death, God wasn't off having a nap, wasn't outside his control. And personally, that in all your failures, in your sadness, in your sin, in the things that you most fear, God is at work. What is the other option? Let's think about it for a minute. The other option is that some things are outside of his control. That if he could have stopped them, he would have. That some things perhaps catch God by surprise. Or that he's powerless to stop them. And that is one way to respond to the question of suffering, isn't it? To say that suffering in this world, especially the worst suffering, is actually outside of God's control. That because God gives human beings choice and because we can choose evil and because God wants us to retain that freedom to choose, then he is powerless to stop the evil that we do. Otherwise, we'd be puppets. Now, in many ways, that's an attractive view. It might be easier to think that some things are outside of God's control especially really bad things. But the Bible teaches very clearly that God is in control of everything that happens in this world. And as you can see on your outline, firstly, I want to think about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God's sovereignty, it's a big word, but it simply means that God is sovereign. He's king. He's in control. And human responsibility simply means that as humans, we're responsible for our actions. Now, which one of those is true? Is God in control of what we do? Or are we in control of what we do? And what we find is that the Bible teaches both. And it holds them together. It's almost like a hammock with a tree at each end. You need both of them. You pull one down, the whole thing, the structure falls down. So the Bible teaches that God is in control and the Bible teaches that we have choices and it holds both those things together. Let's look at them together. That first list of verses, um, Psalm 147 and so on, you can look them up later. They show us very clearly that God is absolutely sovereign over the whole of his creation. Some of those verses there describe God summons a bird and it comes to him. God summons a person from another nation and they come and do his will. Um, in the Psalms there it says he brings about all his plans. It says he chooses who will come to him and who won't. He's not making it up as he goes along. 
He has every event in this world planned out. Right through to the day when Jesus will return and everything will be placed under Jesus' feet, God has a plan. And in fact, uh, that second verse, Isaiah 46, God says, My purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Ephesians 1.11 describes God as the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. From the stars in the sky to the hairs on your head or the lack of them, from what time you went to bed last night to what you ate for breakfast, he has ordained the day that you were born. He has planned the day on which you will die. He's orchestrated it all. There's nothing outside of his control. The Bible teaches that clearly. And that's just part of the verses. There's a lot more. But yet on the other hand, and this is the second list of verses there, Deuteronomy, Joshua and so on. The Bible teaches clearly that we make decisions. God gives us the choice of whether we serve him or not. Joshua 24. We reap the consequences of our own decisions. Galatians 6, we reap what we sow. So God is in control, but we are responsible. And in fact, we see it most clearly in those last two verses, Chronicles and Samuel, where really it all comes together. Turn with me to to 1 Chronicles 21. So we go Joshua, where we were a while ago, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 21. What's happening here is David is conducting a census, like we conduct censuses, censuses in Australia. He's counting the people in his army. Um, but the problem is, as we saw in the psalm earlier, the Lord doesn't de- uh, delight in the strength of men, and David should not be getting his confidence from the size of his army. He should be looking to the Lord for his strength. So this is a bad thing that he's doing, and we see that in the way that it's described. So, in fact, it says here that Satan roused David to do this terrible thing. 1 Chronicles 21.1 Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. And David did it. Now even though Satan is the one who incites David, who puts the idea in his mind, who causes him to do it, David is responsible for his own actions. Look down to verse 8. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done a very foolish thing. Satan tempts us, but that doesn't um, get away from our responsibility. We're the ones who sin. Now turn with me back to 2 Samuel 24. So we go back, Kings, 2 Samuel. There's a lot of overlap between Chronicles, Samuel and Kings. They're actually describing the same events in parallel. And this passage in 2 Samuel 24 is describing exactly the same event, the census. The rest of the chapter is almost identical to Chronicles 21. But look at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So who's incited David to take the census? The Lord has. So who caused the census? Did David? Yes, it was his decision. And he's guilty. And he has to repent of it. 
Did Satan? Well, yes, he did. He's the direct cause of this evil. He incited David to take the census. Did the Lord? Yes, he did. This was all part of his plan. He incited David to take the census. Now, is your mind hurting? Mine is. I can't get my, my mind around that. Quite often we have a puppet play here at church where I control a puppet. And that's quite easy. You and I can control a puppet. A puppet has no life of their own. They don't make their own choices. They're not responsible for their own actions. It's a puppet. It does and says what I make it say. But God can control people like I might control a puppet. But even though we have a life and even though we make choices and even though we are totally responsible for our actions, God is big. And I can't understand how that works, but God is in control of people who make their own decisions but in such a way that they are still responsible for the evil they cause, and yet God is working in that to bring about his good purposes. And I thought the easiest, well, this is not an easy thing to, to talk about, but I thought the easiest way to investigate that will be to look at three examples in the Bible where this is exactly what happens. And you can see them in your outline. The first is from Genesis chapter 50. Uh, so turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And if you were reading those passages during the week... Uh, you will be very familiar with this story. For those of you who didn't read it, Joseph goes to visit his brothers, his older brothers, uh, but they're not children. Um, Joseph is um, 17, so his brothers who are older than him are adults by now. They're out grazing the flocks, and his, he, his brothers do to him something absolutely terrible. They sell him as a slave to some people who are going to Egypt, then they take his robe, you know, his favourite robe that his father made for him, and they put the blood of a goat on it. And they take his robe back to his father and they pretend that he's been killed by wild animals. So much do they hate him. And his father is heartbroken that David is dead. Now, years later, the brothers come to Egypt for food and the prime minister of Egypt is their brother Joseph, who they thought that they'd got rid of so many years ago. Now listen to what Joseph says to his brothers about the events afterwards. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, what Joseph's brothers did was evil. There's no doubt about that. You intended to harm me, but... God intended it for good. Notice it's not saying that God patched things up after they went wrong. It's not as if God was letting things run their natural course with the brothers and then, whoops, Egypt, that wasn't the plan. Uh, so God brings in plan B. Joseph can become king of Egypt. It's not saying that things were out of control when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and God is like a clever chess player and a few smart moves and he swings the game back in his direction. It's not saying that. It says, you intended, intent, planned to harm me, but God intended it for good. At the very time Joseph's brothers are planning to sell him into slavery, God is planning that this is for his good. And yet, even though this is God's plan, it doesn't excuse the brothers for their actions. What they did was wrong. So in the one and same event, human beings are doing evil, God is using that evil for his good. 
God is big. God is in control of everything, even human evil. The second example one is is even starker. Turn with me to Isaiah 10, verse 5, right in the exact middle of your Bible. So Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Isaiah 10, 5, and God says to um, the king of Assyria and the Assyrian army, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. This is um, God sending the king of Assyria against a godless nation, which happens to be Israel. They've been disobeying God. So God is here using the king of Assyria in judgment against Israel. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. The king of Assyria is power hungry and he wants to kill people. But God will use the king of Assyria for his own good. He will use the king of Assyria to punish his own people for their sin. The Assyrian king is his wooden spoon, his leather strap, his fly swatter, the instrument of his punishment. He calls them the rod of his anger, the club of his wrath. God is using the Assyrian king to bring about his righteous judgment, his good judgment. And God uses strong language here. I send him, I dispatch him. This is God's doing. Yet when it's all over, the Assyrian king will be held accountable for his own evil actions. Look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasuries. Like a mighty one I subdued their kings. This is the king of Assyria bragging. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As men gather abandoned eggs, I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. And then God says to the king of Assyria, Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Or the saw boast against him who uses it? Assyria is a tool in the hand of God. God raises up nations. God destroys nations, evil nations, for his own purposes. And yet those nations will be held accountable for their actions. God is in control of this world and he's good. Yet he's able to use evil in a way that brings about his good. And in a way that he's not accountable for the evil, the people who are evil are. Notice that God is behind good and evil in different ways. God is never the direct cause of evil. Because God is good. And whenever God allows evil or brings evil, there's always a third party involved. Joseph's brothers, the king of Assyria, Satan. 
they are directly responsible for the evil they do. God isn't. God is good. But yet in his goodness and in his sovereignty, he even has evil in his control. And the third example I think is the most amazing. It's the crucifixion of Jesus where God allows his own son to suffer. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 27. In this last passage, in the third example, it's talking about terrible, terrible injustice where God's own son is crucified. And we read about it as we had communion. And so we know, don't we, that on the one hand, evil human beings conspire together to put to death the Son of God. Look at verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. But on the other hand, this was God's plan all along. Look at verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, the Bible's not embarrassed about them. They're together, one verse after the other. These events are brought about by evil men, and yet this is God's plan. And I think that very tension, human evil, God's sovereignty, is what shapes Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays, Father, everything is possible for you. And that's true, isn't it? Everything is possible for God. God could have stopped Pontius Pilate. God could have stopped King Herod. God could have stopped the crucifixion. Things are not out of control. Even Jesus knows it as he's going to the cross. Father, everything is possible for you. Nothing's outside of your control. And so Jesus prays his, uh, what he wants. Take this cup from me. Jesus does not want to go through this human evil. Jesus does not want to go through this suffering. He doesn't want to bear the Father's anger. He says, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Father, you have a plan. You're in control, and may your will be done. And God did have a plan. He had decided beforehand what should happen. That his only beloved son would bear the punishment for our sin on himself. That was God's plan. That in doing so, he would make it possible for us to be forgiven. And God used evil men to bring about that plan. And Jesus, right in the middle of it, even though he didn't want to do it, even though he wanted another way out, he's able to pray Father, your will be done. Jesus was able to trust that God was, in fact, in control. And that's often the prayer we need to pray, isn't it? We don't know what God's plan is, but we know that he has one. And so we pray, Father, your will be done. God is big. He's bigger than we are. It's not up to us to work out his plans. Everything that happens in this world happens with his permission. And it's not just that God is in control of the big things, the nations and the end outcomes. God is intricately involved 
every step of the way. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Not one sparrow. Some people think that God only acts in this world when a miracle happens. But God is acting when a sparrow falls to the ground. Some people think that just every now and then God steps in and intervenes when there's a miracle. But God is every bit as in control when someone dies of cancer as he is when someone is healed. God is every bit in control through suffering as he is through good times. God is every bit in control when Jesus is crucified as he is when Jesus is raised from the dead. Nothing's outside of his plan. God is big. There's no surprises for God. Now we've looked at some pretty hard stuff there, I know. Hard for our minds, hard for our hearts. But it has a very powerful take-home message, which I just want to touch in on. Firstly, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, I hope you see the warning in these passages. You might think that you can run away from God. Ignore him. Have your own way. Put off thinking about him. But he sees all that you do. And you are responsible for your actions. And one day he will call you to account. That's why we all need to come to Jesus and have our sin dealt with. You don't want to be on the wrong side of a God who is this powerful. There's no escaping. There's no way that what you do will go unnoticed by him. But if you're a follower of Jesus, then these passages come as a comfort, don't they? Turn with me uh, again to Romans. Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer in verse 37 is no, because God is in control of all those things. Now, I know for some of you, it might be an uncomfortable thought that God is in control of everything. Some of you have had great suffering and pain in your life. And you might think, if God is in control, why didn't he stop it? Why did he let it happen? And in fact, it might be easier to deal with it by saying, God wasn't in control. But what's the alternative? Shall trouble separate us from the love of Christ? Well, if God's not in control of everything, it's possible. Shall hardship? Well, God's doing his best, but if there's things he can't control. And persecution? Well, God will strengthen you, but there's no guarantee you won't track won't crack and danger well god feels as much regret over danger as you do but if in the end people make their own decisions and he can't stop it it's out of his hands now that's the alternative but thankfully that's not true that's not what god is like trouble is under god's control hardship is under god's rule persecution is under god's supervision Even Satan is under God's control. Death is under God's control. Demons are under God's control. The present is under God's control. The future is under God's control. Everything in all of creation 
is under God's control. And that's why Paul can say confidently in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Of course not. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why not? Because he's in control of it all. Whatever you might have been through, whatever you might have to go through in the future, it's not out of God's control. He's greater than your worst enemy. He's greater than your feelings. He's greater than your doubts. He's greater than your anxiety. He's greater than the worst situation you've been in. He's greater than any suffering. And that's why he can promise that if you're a follower of Jesus, he'll never let you go. None of those things will be able to separate you from his love. God's greater than all that. So what's the worst possible thing that could happen to you? Some of you might think that it's already happened. Can that thing separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus? Of course not. Because God is in control of everything. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a comfort. We know, we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And next week we're going to see what for the good of those who loves him means. Let's pray. Father God, you are bigger than we are. And Father, you are bigger than even we thought you were. You can do immeasurably more than we could ask or ever imagine. So Father, thank you that you're in control of this world. Thank you that ultimately everything in this world is under the control of someone who is good. Thank you that we know you. And Father, we repent of just the small view of you that we sometimes have. Please help us to trust you. Please help us to remember that you are always in control of everything. Please help us not to complain and whinge about things that come our way. Because we know that you bring them. And Father, thank you that you work in all things for your good. Amen.